every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and the spin-off series, Angel. Uh, talking with me tonight is Melanie Scala, uh, who previously joined me for episode nine to talk about What's My Line, part one and part two. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being patient and waiting this long to come back. Thanks for joining me. How's it going? It's going pretty well. Good. Good. So uh, last time we talked, uh, we had just been introduced to the the idea of having a second Slayer. Uh, and now there's Slayers all over the damn place. Uh, and, <laughs> and the Order of Taraka was promising that they would just never stop hunting Buffy. And of course, they haven't shown back up even one damn right. time. So, <laughs> so here we are. But uh, um, how's it going? Like, what's... Uh, What's been going on? Has anything Buffy-related been going on in your life since we last spoke? Not really. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's a pretty specific question. I don't know why I drilled down so, <laughs> so tight. There's a talk of the the remake slash uh, reboot, whatever yes. it is. Yes. That's, I, I still don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I can't remember if that was a thing the last time we talked. I don't think so. I think that broke after uh, you were on the show. But um, yeah, we we've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast. I yeah, I don't know. I I still struggle with it. Although, uh, so here, here's a teaser that nobody of this podcast will care about because it's for my other podcast, Gobbly Geek. <laughs> but uh, my co-host over there, Arlo, and I were just having a conversation the other day about how. Um, we we have typically been the sort of cliche uh, nerds who complain anytime news of a new reboot or remake or whatever uh, comes out for anything. Uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, why can't Hollywood just make new stuff? Right. Um, but uh, we were talking about the new the newest version, the fourth version of the film A Star Is Born, and uh, we both sort of independently simultaneously had an epiphany of why are we so precious with uh movies uh and i will i'll extend this to television since we're talking about the buffy reboot why like uh the works of shakespeare have been adapted hundreds of thousands of times like every single day there's a new version some new telling of a shakespeare story being put on somewhere in the world and uh comics get rebooted all the time and there are different versions of of books i don't know like we're okay with hearing with seeing or ingesting different versions uh different interpretations of certain things but for some reason movies and uh like i said television we're so like protective of uh 
And uh, Arlo and I have been guilty of that, as guilty as anybody of that. But for some reason, we have just recently decided, you know what, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's all right for there to be There di- are definitely things that I really love being able to compare versions. And uh, I recently watched both the original and the remake of The Beguiled. And the thing that bothers me is... Uh, when the new version is basically the old version, but with new actors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to, if you're going to tell a new version, tell a new version. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm still like, I described it as an epiphany that Arlo and I each came to, but, uh, I don't know if I even feel as strongly about it now as I did last week when we <laughs> had this conversation, I'm back to feeling like, man, just don't just don't retell Buffy's story. Like don't, don't recast Buffy and tell the same yeah. story. Like, I think I, with stuff that you really love, it's a lot harder to accept other versions. Yeah. I just, I just watched the uh, Netflix series, um, the haunting of Hill house. Uh-huh. And I, I love the story and I actually really love both of the film adaptations, even though they're not super faithful to the the story and this one in some ways like it was much more faithful to the story but they did all this like remix stuff with the characters where they were all family members instead of being part of an experiment they grew up in the house Mm -hmm. and like initially i was really like i am only watching this because i have nothing else to do (laughs) and but but I, it started getting really good. I wasn't crazy. Like when they were very faithful to the ending of uh, the original story, how it felt that that's actually, I, the one thing I don't like about the short story and, um, or the novel, whatever. I don't remember. It's a while. Um, and it, it kind of, it is a little sad, but not like it doesn't have a big scary ending. And the series does the same thing. And that's actually the thing that I'm most disappointed about having watched it. <laughs> that it just had the, the same ending. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not typically a fan, generally speaking of horror. Uh, and I'm not super familiar with any version of the haunting of Hill house. So I've just had no desire to rush out and watch this new Netflix series, but I have heard a lot of positive stuff about it. Yeah, they do really interesting stuff with it. And um, I, I tend to stick with, for movies, like the gothic horror stuff, like um, like uh, The Woman in Black mm-hmm. or, um, you know. Crimson the, the Yeah, exactly. And, and like the Coppola Dracula yeah. that is terrible and amazing all at once. <laughs> exactly, yes. Agree. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I was about to go off on a rant about uh, the the live action Avatar: The Last Airbender news that broke recently, but that again, that's another podcast. That's an entirely different podcast <laughs> series for me. So just be aware that that's out there, and I have feelings on it. <laughs> so, anyways, but that's not what any of you all are here to talk about. We're here to talk about Buffy. So, 
Let me drop the spoiler warning. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them, so I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once, please press pause on this silly little podcast and go do that right now. Um, We'll wait. I'll I'll flip the egg timer right now. We'll wait. (laughs) No, we're not going to wait. They can do that on their own time. Uh, Melanie, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go. All right. So uh, this time around, we are, this is the penultimate discussion of Buffy season three. We're going to be discussing uh, 319 choices and 320 the prom. So we're getting, we're getting down to it. We Um, really are. I love choices so much mm-hmm. like it i sort of enemies and choices in my head are kind of linked i know that there's an episode between them but <laughs> of course when i first saw this they went one to the other i was gonna say there is now there wasn't originally <laughs> yes then they just there's so many um just so many choices that you can see going on up to this point that this episode then just like dives right into them. Yeah. I think, uh, last time, uh, with Matthew, my discussion, uh, about enemies and earshot, which is the, the one that comes between enemies and choices. Um, I think I had mentioned how odd it must have been. I, I don't remember. I don't remember from my original viewing, but I just imagine how odd it must have been to go from enemies to choices because I felt like Earshot, even though it was kind of a, I mean, it was technically a monster of the week episode. It was kind of a filler episode. I felt like there was some uh, character threads that continued through and it seemed Mm -hmm. like, it seemed like there might've been a little bit of a, I don't know, a, a disconnect or a stutter for viewers to go from enemies right into choices do you not think that's the case? It's not the case for me, certainly. Um, okay. I think they really, they pair together very well. I should have tried to watch them back to back. I did not do that. Um, yeah, I don't, I, like I said, I don't remember what it was like at the time when Earshot was, um, was postponed or whatever. Uh, and we just went straight from enemies into choices. But uh, at any rate, yeah, written by David Fury, uh, who's got a—he's already got a couple scripts under his belt, but uh, he is certainly one of the the big names in the writers' yes. room. And and of course, he moves on to Angel, and he's got all this Angel stuff going on in these two episodes. Yeah, so I can't remember if it was—I apologize to James and Matthew, uh, my two most recent guests. I cannot remember which one of them was asking or or was wondering if this point in season three, if the writers already knew that angel was leaving and specifically if he was leaving to go get his own show, um, they were, they were wondering if some of the stuff we were seeing was deliberately setting that up. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but at this point in the series, surely, (laughs) surely they know what's going on. I mean, we're, we're only a few episodes away from the end of the season and it really especially with uh, Cordelia, it really feels like they're setting the stage. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I I don't know for certain because it was so long ago, but I feel like I remember the news breaking around this time of there being a spinoff. 
yeah, I don't remember when the whole angel, like, I don't remember when I first became aware that angel was going to get his own show. I, I can tell you, I, I can extrapolate from who I was back then that I probably wasn't excited about it. I wasn't either. <laughs> I was, I was going to watch it, but I was like, I give it a chance. Yeah. It's probably terrible. Yeah. I mean, I obviously watched it and I, I obviously uh, grew to adore yeah. it. I love Angel, but at the time I wasn't really an Angel fan and I kind of was just happy that he was not going to be on Buffy anymore. Uh, I'm so sorry. But um, <laughs> anyways, um, back to choices. So I also love this episode and I love David Fury and I, and, and I think, I think this is a great episode, but um, the like every week in my notes, I've got a little a little section for the metaphor. Like I write down what I think the, the metaphor of this particular episode is. And for this one, the metaphor is choices. Duh. That's what I wrote. Um, there's not not a lot that is sort of um, subtext about this. Yeah. I mean, so so what what sort of choices do we see Buffy or uh, and the other characters facing here? Well, of course there's the the college acceptance yeah. what to do, where to go, whether or not you can go at all. Although mm -hmm. that never made sense to me that she couldn't leave the Hellmouth because there have been slayers all over the world and they did not come to the Hellmouth. Right. There's also at least one other Hellmouth that we know of from season seven that there's one in cleveland yeah so why can't she go slay vampires in illinois or whatever it, it never made sense to me that is a very good point i uh that that hadn't occurred to me you're absolutely right the only reason buffy is on the hellmouth is because she happens to be on the hellmouth yeah <laughs> like uh i don't i don't know kendra when Kendra was called, I guess she was sent to Sunnydale. Like she was sent to Sunnydale for a specific reason. I don't remember. I literally just watched this. It wasn't that long ago, but like they didn't say, all right, here's a new Slayer. She needs to go hang out on the Hellmouth. Like they sent her right, there for exactly. a reason. Yeah. And uh, in the, the um, alternate universe of the wish mm -hmm. Buffy, they had to invite her. They had to reach out to her and get her to come to, to Sunnydale. Yeah. Yeah. And things were infinitely worse there. <laughs> than they are in the real timeline. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. Hadn't thought of that. That's one of those. Um, at the moment that I'm watching the episode, it doesn't really stand out as being sort of a, a nitpick or a, or a, an oops, but it's, it's just one of those things. One of those little, um, I don't know, plot contrivances that the show allows. Yeah. Similarly, uh, how Buffy got into Northwestern. <laughs> I mean, I was a decent student and I did not get into like I, I had a similar SAT score and I did not get into like anything near as prestigious as Northwestern. Yeah. Well, that's one of the Slayer's powers is to get into. Yes. <laughs> a, good, a good college, I guess. Um, let's see. What do we got? We've We've got a Xander's choice of going on the road and being a cliche. Yeah, play go on the Kerouac route. Um, I love the I love the line. We Bohemian anti-establishment types have always been persecuted, and Oz is like, "Well, sure, because you're also weird." Yep, <laughs> that's great. Um, now that so remind me, 
jumping ahead a little bit, um, like between seasons, he does go on the road, right? Yes, he does. Okay. And then we find out that his like he got as far as like Ohio or somewhere, and <sighs> then his car broke down, and he spent the summer as a stripper or at a strip oh, bar. That's right. It's all coming back to me. Yeah. Okay. So he kind of goes. So on, he's got on that, but he's also got like the choice when um he fights with with Cordy, and then uh, Willow tells him not to to her and he says it's just his nature and she says maybe you need a better nature right yeah and by the by the end of the prom he actually you know maybe gets a little tiny bit better (laughs) maybe a tiny bit i (laughs) had forgot i had forgotten i had forgotten how subtle they were with i I don't know maybe subtle is not the right word but i i i thought i remembered that that was much more overt that they like had really spelled out the fact like i guess what i mean as i thought that they had had a conversation where um it was just outright revealed that he had paid for the dress but that's not the case like no it's pretty it's it's pretty pretty clear that's what happens but like no one ever says that it it's kind of like at the end of the zeppo when he doesn't have to tell them he saved them from explosion yeah every once in a while he just you know he does something good and doesn't have to get credit for it. I drag Xander a lot on this podcast, but he he's got his moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So what else do we have? Um. So I actually I'm quite fond of the scene, the, and I don't, I don't know. This is a small thing, and maybe it's a little weird. Maybe I was imagining it. Maybe I was asleep when I was watching. But I kind of like the scene when uh, Buffy is sort of petitioning Wesley and Giles to be allowed to leave Sunnydale. Of course, now you've ruined the scene for me because you've pointed <laughs> out that why can't she leave the Hellmouth? But um, at the time that I was rewatching, I really liked that scene because for uh, at least a brief moment, at least for that short scene, like all three characters um, are sort of like talking to each other, like real people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so, it's so refreshing to see Wesley, kind of allowed to be a functioning member of the group, even if they're, even if he's not her favorite person, at least they're speaking to each other in kind of a semi-adult manner. And mm-hmm. it's a tiny little thing. I adore Wesley. So any modicum of respect he gets from anybody, I really grasp onto, but uh, I did like that scene between the three of them. Yeah. With uh, choices, um, we've got Faith recommit over and over even though she she's there's moments where she's clearly not sure if this is being with with the mayor is a good move but we see her like really stubbornly sticking with it and she i think the scene at the airport when she kills the courier Mm -hmm. is like her intense commitment to this new persona of evil slayer even makes the vampire that's there to take the courier to the mayor uncomfortable. Like he, he's freaked out that she killed him and then she's willing to cut through bone. And he's like, that is freaky. I wondered about that when she, when he was like, that's not going to cut through steel. She's like, yeah, but it'll cut through bone. And he has a weird look and I'm like, come on, dude, you're a vampire. Relax. (laughs) (laughs) You've seen You've seen worse than that. Chill out. But, um, yeah, so that raises a question that I I don't know if this is ever 
been answered, but um, is there some question about whether that courier was just a regular human? I don't think it's ever addressed. Okay. So, I mean, he obviously it doesn't... It seems unlikely, though. Yeah, I mean, he had, like, like, he had some sort of tribal tattoos or whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, I don't know. It it could have been read either way. He doesn't turn to dust. He doesn't dissolve into blue goo or anything like that when she kills him. So, on the one hand, it kind of looked like maybe she just killed another human. But again, um, yeah, the tattoos and... I don't know. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, was that was that the second human that we've seen her kill, and actually the first that we've seen her like willingly, deliberately. yeah, deliberately yeah. kill. It's hard to say. Hmm. I always assumed he was a demon because you know, box of Gavrock. Mm-hmm, right. Interesting. I'm gonna have to research that or listeners playing along at home if you know <laughs> uh, you know share with the class let us know um conversations with conversations with dead people on facebook uh, okay speaking of angel uh there's the the fun sort of mission impossible scene <laughs> um that uh w- we get so Willow's got some strong moments in this, in actually both of these episodes, but yeah, um, she, does. she, like in this episode, she uses her magic uh, intentionally and effectively with no obvious repercussions uh, twice, uh, which may be a first, I think. Uh, but she's got the great scene where she, you know, breaks down the magic barrier over the box. Uh, mm-hmm. I love that moment. She's like, oh, I'm bad. I'm bad. I know. That was great. Um, but the, the weird angel thing about that scene is that they've got their, their fancy mission impossible suspension rig that he's lowering Buffy right? down with. I have that like in my notes as well. Why Angel's strong enough to lower Buffy down without it. Yeah. He and was it... struggling. He was struggling really hard with that. Wasn't he? Yes. <laughs> and like, I just, I know it's there too, because they needed it for the story, but it's just, why do they even have that? Yeah, it was it was pretty fancy. I don't think they really <laughs> needed to be that fancy. Uh, and then uh, in in the fight that quickly follows that scene, um, it takes him and Buffy both, and they both show a little bit of strain. That typical like stage actor show that this mm-hmm. balsa wood table is heavy. Act, right. But it takes both of them to flip that table, and I'm like, really, like. Angel should have been able to like heft that table over his head and just drop it on the other yeah. guys. But I don't know. Well, aside from little things like that, I feel like the fight choreography in this episode was uh, pretty good. Um, there weren't any um, glaring moments, at least that I caught where it was obviously not Sarah Michelle Geller or David Boreanaz doing the fight, which is well, always, like always good for me. We talked about last time. I'm, I'm always looking. So, um, I definitely, I could tell when they switch uh-huh. and uh, it's, it's harder for them to disguise Mike Massa be, when, when you get like the side of his face right? Yeah. because, because there's no hair to hide behind. So I always catch those first, but I mean, it, it was pretty good. It was not perfect, but it was good. Yeah. Um, I guess now I'm just, oh man, what was the episode with, uh, 
the episode with Pearl. Not Pearl. That's the vampire that I always mistake. Balthazar. Um, uh, I can't remember what episode it was. We just talked about it recently. But um, with uh, Balthazar, the big fat right. vampire, in that fight sequence that happened in that whole warehouse, I mentioned the fact that probably the worst example of them not even trying to hide the fact that that was not Sarah Michelle Gellar in that fight. There were plenty of just like camera holds on the stunt actress <laughs> and it's obviously not Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, so now I kind of look at everything in light of that scene and I'm like, Oh, that was really good. Like I didn't spot anything <laughs> in this episode that stood out that, that much, but to be fair, I wasn't looking for uh, Mike Massa as much as I was for Buffy's double, whose name always escapes me. I never remember. Do you know it? I do not. It's I, it's the same. I'm pretty sure it's the same stunt actress the whole time, but I I'm terrible. I can't remember. Anyways, um, so what other choices do we have? Uh, there's obviously the big one. There's obviously the big choice that we're building up to. Yes, the uh, the trade Willow for the box of us or the box of Gavrock. Yeah. So how'd you feel about that? Um, well, initially I, I, uh, always feel like Wesley does at the end where they basically, they had this whole big thing and it got them nothing, mm -hmm. but it didn't really get them nothing because Willow got those pages and she wouldn't have been able to bring them that very vital information without, um, having been kidnapped. <sighs> damn look at you 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 got me because i was uh i was all ready to play the yeah that was a mistake card i adore willow and it would have utterly destroyed me and possibly the show if, <laughs> if they had actually like sacrificed willow uh in order to keep that box but as i've already said uh wesley's my guy and uh yeah. so i'm i'm a lot more team wesley in this particular instance than i am anybody else and um I'm I'm glad that they got Willow back, but I was like, I, I'm the guy that keeps pointing out on this podcast all the instances where, like, Willow messing up the spell, accidentally, but Willow messing up the spell that her and Anya were working on that caused the whole Doppelgangland thing. Mm -hmm. um, like, the events of that led to at least one person that we know of in the bronze being killed. And they're... they're I keep pointing out examples of this where our characters actions, they'll do something silly or stupid, or they'll just make a mistake and it costs other people <laughs> their lives. Um, and they usually, it's usually not even mentioned again or called out. And there, I can't think of an instance where people are really held accountable for that. Um, but yeah, this is another example where um, they, they made the choice to trade in order to get Willow back. And potentially as Wesley says, that is, that will cost thousands, possibly millions of lives. Um, but like that's in the abstract, in the reality, we see at least one person die in the immediate after <laughs> aftermath of that exchange. Um, and because it leads to the Ascension, others will die. That's true. I think with the the benefit of having seen what happens in uh during the ascension and uh with the news from the prom that the class of 99 had the lowest mortality rate I think it's easier to um kind of gloss over that 
mm-hmm. because they've helped so many more people than mm-hmm. they've allowed to be sacrificed or inadvertently caused to be sacrificed. Let's see that way. Now I'm not, I am not arguing or debating this with you because I, I, I don't think there is a right or a wrong answer here. i I see pros and cons either way, but that line of thinking is what leads us could lead us down the road that faith has gone down where she's like in the balance, Buffy, we save more lives. Like no one's going to cry over one person getting caught in the crossfire. Yes, that's true. I'm a big fan of the good place. And there's all these philosophical arguments that both support that and suggest that they're not necessarily, but basically there's no way to, say one way or the other yeah yeah so i guess i you know i was gonna ask the question of was it the right choice to make that trade but like i said i i there's not i don't know i i I guess it it's a matter of opinion although i i can't help but imagine the the spin-off series that could have been uh that's about all of the people in sunnydale whose friends and and loved ones died because of, as a result of uh, the Scooby gang sort of uh, saving themselves. We hate Buffy Summers club. Exactly. We hate Cordelia Chase club. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And uh, so continuing on my, with my Wesley love for a little bit here. um, It's interesting to note that going forward, I don't, like we really don't get much more of him on Buffy he the next time we really see him after this season is on Angel the series but uh, his character arc going forward Wesley really does continue to be the one who is most often willing to make the hard choices so it it uh it's fitting it's it's perfectly within character that he was the one who was like we cannot trade the box for Willow Mm -hmm. I agree doesn't and it... I think that it's very in character that before they even tried to get the box, he was like, slow down. We have to figure this out. We have to talk this through. We have to look at ramifications. And the Scoobies are just like, nope, we got it. We're going. Yeah, that was another great moment where uh, just a couple of episodes ago, that scene would have been about nothing more than Wesley just being upset that I'm the leader. You're supposed to be. I'm in charge here. You're supposed to be doing right. what I say. Uh, and there was just a little bit of that in this scene, but he also had valid concerns and this and mm-hmm. Buffy and, and the Scooby gang were genuinely just rushing in, which I guess they usually do, but yes, they do. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was, it's nice that there was a little bit of uh, give and take there. Yeah. I always, when I watch that scene, like part of me is like, Oh yeah, Buffy just zinged him. And then the rest of me is like, yeah, but he's got a point. Mm -hmm. And I am also a big Wesley fan. He and Faith have my favorite character arcs. Yeah, uh, agreed. Yeah. I just, I adore them both. But when, when forcibly pressed, I choose Wesley over Faith. (laughs) That's fair. I I would agree with that. I, it would be a, you would have to force me to make that choice. <laughs> but if I was forced, uh, I think Wesley would edge faith out for me, but 
Yeah, I think if we got more, because we get so much of Wes in Angel, if we got more more faith, then it might be a even harder decision. Mm-hmm. But since since um, we don't get as much of of her, particularly past this point, um, she she kind of drifts in and out of the storylines. Although, like Wesley, we're we're getting into the weeds here. But although Wesley is my number one favorite character in, in either series. Um, just topping out faith faith does get what is probably my favorite scene in the entire in both series um the alleyway scene where she breaks down but i have to say that like it took me a long time to understand why she would break down i was just like why what i this doesn't care like character wise it didn't connect for me for a long time does it now so to an extent okay um i feel like with with more life experience for myself um i i can understand it a little more but i still think it was a bit abrupt um well we'll see how it how it plays uh on this podcast actually because so i'm gonna interrupt our flow as in as much as we have a flow going right now, I'm going to interrupt the flow just for a second to, to mention that kind of off mic with a few of my guests and, and behind the scenes with all sorts of people just in my daily life, I have been revisiting uh, my decision uh, that I had stated at the very top of this entire conversation with dead people project uh, where I had said I was going to uh, run all the way through Buffy uh, all seven seasons before I started doing Uh, the five seasons of angel even though starting with season four of buffy angel is running concurrently and there are some crossovers there have been people who were like well maybe you should alternate episodes maybe you should cover both shows at the same time or whatever i wasn't down for that i started second guessing myself recently so i kind of put it up for a vote and i've I've gotten mixed results but i just want to say i have recommitted to that notion and uh Perhaps some of the stuff. Now my cat is making noise. You were warning <laughs> me about your cats, and now my cat is trying to get attention. Um, uh, it, it, there may be a little bit of awkwardness when uh, we're discussing an episode of Buffy that then hits a cliffhanger, and that storyline is actually resolved in an episode of Angel. But since this is a spoiler podcast, I think it's appropriate when those times happen that we will we'll talk about the episode of Buffy, obviously. And then we can also discuss a little bit briefly about what, how this story continues on angel. Mm-hmm. My goal here is that I want Buffy to get the series to get our full attention. And then even for me, even more importantly, when we start covering angel, I want angel to get our full undivided attention. I don't want to have to sort of divide my divide our conversations amongst the two shows. That's understandable. Anyways, that, the, what made me bring that up is you you talking about uh, um, how you thought the sort of th- that character beat for Faith that happens on uh, Angel the series felt a little abrupt or unearned or whatever. And I, I'm feeling like there are certain things that the char- ter- character goes through on Buffy that directly... Good Lord, Ember. Is this necessary? <laughs> that... Uh, that sort of directly informs 
where she's at when she eventually goes to Angel. But since we're not going to be talking about both shows at the same time, we'll see how that plays. Okay. That was a lot. That was a huge interjection. That was completely unnecessary. <laughs> I apologize. No worries. Anyways, back to the show that we're here to talk about. Uh, so let's talk about Willow and how great she was in this. We already talked about uh, her two um, effective uses of magic. Um, the second one yes. I didn't even mention the whole. So in, again, I've already forgotten what episode it was, but we saw her levitating a pencil in an earlier episode. I that was enemies. And I have this in my notes as well. Okay. Um, oh, so there's one of the direct connections then. Yes. That you were talking about. So yeah, we saw her uh, when I was taking my notes on that episode. Um, I remember writing, and how useful would this spell be for fighting vampires? Completely, I had completely forgotten that it it directly proves to be useful. <laughs> so I thought that was I thought that was a great callback. So that is interesting. That uh, that does make it seem like earshot is just sort of plopped down in the middle for no reason. Yeah, I think the if. Um... Like, if they hadn't needed to postpone it, they could have also just plunked it before or after, um, before enemies or after choices. Yeah. And it would have, it would have still been fine. Um, but, okay, so, but aside from the two sort of moments of magic, Willow, another thought I had on the whole, was it worth it to trade the box for Willow, is that, Willow kind of seemed like she maybe had it more or less under control. Yeah. And she's, she's a lot. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, the things that happened in, in doppelgangerland is she's a lot more confident in herself than she has been up to this point. And that's shown in her competency with magic when she was nervous and, worried that she was going to mess up she tended to mess up right and now that she you know she handled that whole thing with her evil self and vamp willow was she saw like how comfortable vamp willow was in her own skin she kind of took from that and worked that into herself yeah. Now, of course, the Scooby Gang, Buffy and Giles, they have no way of knowing how, how in hand she has the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, you know, it wouldn't be realistic for them to just assume, oh, Willow can handle herself. But uh, still, it was interesting to watch her sort of stand up to Faith, and I think maybe once Faith had the knife out, things had gone maybe a little past where Willow could handle it. But uh, for the yeah. most part, she was. She was kind of given as good as she was getting there. Yeah, I think like that also calls back to enemies where um, Willow's Willow's been kind of jealous of Buffy and Faith, and there's a little bit of a rivalry there. Mm-hmm. So she she's completely right when she says you made your your choice and you have to deal with that. But there's also I think she was getting out of being like. Uh huh. You're not part of us anymore. Um, it also it reminded me of um, in Brooklyn Nine Nine. There's a scene where a murderer explains why he murdered somebody, and Jake Peralta says, "Cool motive, still murder." <laughs> I love that show. Yes. Um, 
Well, that's great. You've brought up, uh, you've, you've cross promoted, uh, the good place and Brooklyn nine, nine now on this podcast. So two of my favorite sitcoms. So. Those, those are great shows. The good place in particular, uh, I, we maybe is worthy of being brought into the Buffy conversation more often. Cause you're right. There's a lot in that show that thematically crosses over, but, Indeed. um, that scene where, she, where Willow is, is talking down faith. Um, when she says you made your choice, that's interesting, not only because it's Willow not cowering and not backing down, but it also faith has a great reaction to that. Faith is like super, she's her usual cocky self where she's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell me again how there's still time. And, and uh, we could have been friends yeah. and it's not too late or whatever. And then Willow's like, no, no, it's way too late. And for a moment before she gets angry again, faith looks confused and maybe hurt yeah and it's not until the, the mayor comes in and she's like i got someone i got him yeah which is then like sort of against the scene in the cafeteria when uh the mayor's trying to get under buffy and angel skin and he calls buffy pretty and there's a shot of faith's face where she looks uncertain and maybe concerned that because there's that rivalry with her and buffy of course mm -hmm. that uh if Buffy wanted to be evil, maybe he would prefer Buffy and maybe that she's not as important to him as she wants to be. There was a, there were quite a few moments in this episode of um, kind of highlight that, that specific insecurity that Faith has about Buffy. Uh, there was the moment where at the top of the episode where the mayor mentions Buffy's name and Faith get like, draws back and he's like oh what's the matter yeah. is it because i used the b word um and then I, and then the scenes you just mentioned there there were multiple examples that point out uh that faith has been like faith has already had this kind of rivalry this this relationship with buffy before but really after she failed to effectively seduce Angel, I feel like, mm -hmm. and and the mayor specifically brings that up two different times in this episode about that uh, that Angel didn't fall for for my faith, as he calls her. Yes, um, I don't know that that seems like a very specific element of this sort of weird insecurity and rivalry that faith now feels uh with buffy that she couldn't think, she couldn't steal her man from her mm -hmm. and i think um one i think that the mayor is manipulating her this way on purpose to keep her off her feet like i think he genuinely does care about her but he's not going to let that get it in the way of his plans mm -hmm. and also i think this uh this this insecurity and rivalry kind of is most of Faith, Faith's arc before she, you know, has her has the alley scene with uh, particularly in season four. You know, she sleeps with Riley mm -hmm. and um, when she's she's when she's Buffy and um, with that whole switch where she's kind of just taking Buffy out for for a drive, mm -hmm. a test drive. And she's she's trying out being Buffy and seeing that she does actually like it likes being the good guy she she moves it and 
before we get to that point, she really has to like delve into being evil, but she's never as sure about it as she wants to be. Like, I think that scene in the beginning that I was talking about where she, she, you know, whoever, whether he was a demon or, or human, she killed that guy and she was cool with it. She was cool with chopping off his hand. She was cool with uh, the idea of uh, stabbing people's eyes out with her fancy new knife. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's like she's overcompensating for, for being evil because she's she remembers, you know, she was a good guy once and she did good things and it made her feel good even if that wasn't the reason she was doing it. Or maybe that was the reason she was doing it. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so we talked about how uh, the setting the stage, uh, moving the pieces around um, as a lead into Angel getting his own show. Basically, they're they're transitioning him off of this show. And uh, one of the big ways that they do that is they have the mayor um, give that very truthful speech. So this is the second time that a villain on the show, uh, this probably been more times, but the second that I'm thinking of where... Uh, a beloved villain has given a very truthful, honest, and effective speech about the nature of Buffy and Angel's relationship. The first being Spike, obviously. Right. You'll never be friends. <laughs> um, and the, and now the mayor. Um, and as we will see going into the next episode, prom that. Uh, that... Yeah, that's mirrored with Joyce, and I think yeah. like Joyce's is supposed to be like less harsh. Mm-hmm. which makes it come off as more harsh. Like she, she was trying to be nice about it. And the mayor wasn't, the mayor was trying to piss them off and make them unhappy and put a seed of, of doubt in them. And, and I think Joyce was just like, look, I'm, I'm just looking out for my, my kid. And if that means that I make you sad for a while, who cares? Okay, that's that's awesome that you brought that up because I I wanted to I wanted to talk about how strange it was for me to feel like I I was more upset at Joyce. Uh like you said, Joyce's speech felt crueler or whatever, like felt m- more harsh than the mayor. Um when the mayor was giving that speech, he's obviously the bad guy. He's obviously mm-hmm. giving this speech as a way of messing with their heads, but there's also because he's wrapping it up with his w- what I read as very genuine emotion tied into this relationship that he had had with his wife and how he watched his wife a- grow old and die without him and all that. Uh, there was something, even though he's clearly the villain giving a villain speech, it it read as honest and I I, I don't know since sincere or whatever, and even though Joyce is not the villain, her speech came off a lot more like the, the interfering parent just trying to keep the young lovers apart. Yeah. And that's not fair to Joyce because Joyce was very reasonable and she had, she, she brought up very valid points and I don't think she was needlessly cruel in the way that she did it, but indeed, but it still came off as harsher. And, She was so much cooler than like my mom would have been about Buffy sleeping over and stuff. Right. My mother would have murdered Angel like <laughs> the skin that she found out that I slept with him if I was Buffy. Right. Yeah. There, there were 
there would have been no season two because my mother would have just cut off its head immediately. <laughs> and we've seen how easy it would be to kill Angel in his own house. Just, just open the curtains. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like all, every thing, single, every single door and window in that house has, has full sun, you know, faces the sun and it's always daylight outside whenever someone opens those curtains. So. The other thing that it's just a little minor thing I noticed is why doesn't he have any clocks? Like if if your yeah. life is dependent on whether it's sunny out or not, why don't you have like an alarm clock that, you know, lets you know that, hey, maybe you shouldn't open the curtains right now. Well, I'd say that it's because he's almost 250 years old and he just has an innate sense for when it's. Uh, when it's day and when it's night, but that obviously isn't the case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or he would have stopped Buffy from opening the curtains. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife and I just stayed at a super hipster hotel in Nashville, and uh, the room that we stayed in had no clocks. It had, uh, it had an hourglass. Like when you walked in the door of the room, there was a little table right there with a with a big hourglass. I don't know if it was. I mean, it worked. It was a functioning hourglass, but I just, I don't know if that was an intentional choice, but I noticed there wasn't a clock in the room, but there was a big hourglass. That is super weird. That is super weird. It was a very, it was a very nice, it was a lovely hotel, but it was super hipster. <laughs> we did not belong there at all. <sighs> Anyways. Um, Speaking so of timepieces, I loved the scene where, where. Giles, or Wesley wants to synchronize their watches and then Buffy and, and Willow just show him their their watchless wrists yes and he's like of course of course <laughs> uh also there was a minor thing in that scene where uh giles it's kind of calls back to uh the conversation where they were all adults mm -hmm. and talking like grown-ups mm -hmm. um giles offers his thermos of tea to wesley it's a little wesley it's kind of part of the group now even though nobody likes him god bless you for mentioning that i loved that scene those are the tiny little things that i that thrill me that the fact that uh wesley got to drive well, i mean of course giles's car wouldn't have fit everybody but wesley got to drive the van and yeah just that little touch of of as they're driving away he turns and says tea that, mm -hmm. was, that was lovely. And, and like right before that, just the fact that he includes Wesley in the conversation when he's like, uh, you guys go do this. Wesley and I will provide distraction or, or whatever yes. it is he says. So, yeah. Although the diversion was just uh, peeling out. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that it worked. Like a, it did work, but not necessarily the like I would have definitely planned something a little more diverty. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, I mean, obviously we need to move on into the prom, but, uh, uh, yeah. So the mayor's, uh, speech clearly had an effect. Did you think that the mayor, did you think the mayor raised some valid points? The mayor and Joyce, were they right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, even if this wasn't like a slayer vampire relationship with me December of another year relationship. Mm -hmm. um, when, when you're in high school, it feels like whoever you're dating is going to be your boyfriend forever, or your girlfriend forever. And then you go off to college and 
you grow more and you change more and that you don't always grow and change with that person. And um, I think season four is about that a lot with, um, with the Scoobies, but that would also, I mean, that is so much more intense with, with someone that you are romantically attached to. Yeah. Yeah. Another sort of weird thing for me to readjust to on this on this rewatch of the series is that uh, at this point in the show, it feels kind of like uh, the characters are making their peace with this. Like particularly we're heading into the prom, but particularly by the end of the prom, it seems like the characters and sort of the show is accepting the fact that this was a fun romance, but it's not meant to like, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. It seems perfectly rational and, and logical and almost like, yeah, characters are hurt and it's not fun, but characters are accepting it. But that's not what the show does not do. That. <laughs> like the show going forward, we are still 20 years later having debates about who, who's the best fit for Buffy is uh, Angel or Spike or whatever. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's so weird. I'm so locked into the mindset of everybody wants her to be with Angel or everybody wants her to be with Spike. And, on this rewatch, I'm like, dang, it really seems like this is an appropriate way for this relationship to have ended. Yeah. And I, I love like all the, the jealousy that comes. Angel is my favorite when he's petty. I love petty angel. <laughs> I think petty angel is even better than Angelus and jealous. Oh, wow. But, wow. um, I, I love petty, goofy, whiny. <laughs> I'm the, the, I got this speech about cookie dough. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be fair, uh, James Marsters and D David Boreanaz, when they are sniping at each other, they're amazing. They are both great at that. So, uh, all right. The prom we, we've teased it enough. Um, so my notes on the metaphor for this is the, the quote of, I think it was Oz that said the Hellmouth puts the special in special occasion. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. One, yet one more, um, sort of rite of passage for a teenager for a high school student um gets the its own special hellmouth twist and right off the bat because i this is something i had somehow never heard or at least didn't remember ever hearing uh brad kane the actor that plays tucker wells um apparently he he's the actor that originally delivered the line silly rabbit tricks are for kids i guess really i guess that's what <laughs> that's what i read but more possibly more important than that is he is the singing voice for aladdin in disney's yes. 1992 film i i was oblivious to that that is crazy it it is like um with with uh shows that were filmed in vancouver it's always like you see the same actors and they're always like in genre shows mm -hmm. like you can find Felix Gaeta in continuum and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, you never expect it. Like with this broad of a difference of, of Disney and Buffy. Yeah. I mean, I just, that affected the way I watched the episode, the, the few, he doesn't get a lot of lines. He, he's not on screen a lot, but um for the few brief moments that we get to see him and hear his voice. And I, I was just, I was watching him deliver his, his 
you know, his maladjusted lines or whatever to Buffy. And I was, I was hearing the voice of Aladdin. (laughs) (laughs) I was doing that. That was a little bit uh, crazy. But uh, of course, more significant than uh, the actor's voice is the fact that this, if the actor Brad Kane had been available in season, is it five? Is that when the 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 trio six? Six. It's not till six. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's right. That's right. Because five was glory. Anyways, um, yeah. So if. For season six, they'd wanted to bring Tucker back and the actor was not available, which is why they had to introduce Andrew. But I just thought it was interesting that the character of Andrew that becomes so significant to the show uh, later on is kind of uh, an after effect of this really barely there kind of monster of the week bad guy. The, The Hellhounds were so like barely significant mm-hmm. especially after both uh wesley and giles were like hell uh hellhounds yeah they're particularly nasty creatures they're the foot soldiers of hell or whatever and like buffy kills them without even breaking a sweat yeah and i i don't know why they needed to like the the costume and makeup and everything was so bad oz as a werewolf mm-hmm and I was just like, why didn't you just like film some some big dogs that look scary and maybe do a little enhancement of how scary they are with camera tricks and maybe some CGI? This show loves this series loves its uh its four legged creatures being played by actors in yeah. a, in a Bigfoot costume running on all fours. It's <laughs> terrible. The facial makeup makeup on them was actually kind of cool. I mean, it if they weren't trying to run around on all fours um, and looking really silly, I think they might actually have kind of looked cool. I I kind of dug the facial makeup, but yeah, maybe if if they were upright, yeah, and uh, like they were bred with some sort of bipedal demon to to be bipedal wolf monsters right something that uh you were saying about uh andrew not being able to be in season six or not andrew uh, tucker not being able to be in season six that i thought about later on in this episode where uh he's uh talking to buffy and we see the flashback of why he's doing this Uh Yeah. where it's a total burn on on white male entitlement mm-hmm. is he seems much more like Warren right he, he was kind of a proto Warren yeah. and so it worked out that he was not available because Andrew was sort of he was the lick spittle of of the trio he right. was in love with Warren and and was basically he did whatever Warren wanted and Jonathan was in the middle. He had, he had conscience. He just was not great at following it, but you know, it was there. And when it really, really came down to it, he, you know, he was almost a good guy. He's, he was bothered by the fact that they were doing things that were actually really bad at one point. I, I cannot tell you how sad I am that uh, the prom was not Jonathan's 
grand finale. Like, I love the nerd trio. There's so much fun stuff that comes out of the nerd trio, but there's also a lot of problematic stuff for me that comes out of the nerd trio that that I'll get more into when the show reaches that point. But I I have this I have this thing about Jonathan. Maybe the listeners have picked up on it. I've been really subtle about it, but um, I really I really wish that Jonathan's final moment of being the one to give Buffy the class protector award like that i man i just wish that had been the last we'd seen of jonathan yeah it would have been a very nice ending for his character yeah but i do like that he was there with the trio like i mean it's not unusual for people to backslide i know and it, it also works with the character it's just not as it's nice for him yeah so uh, all right. I'll, I'll potentially get myself in trouble here since we're talking about Jonathan and Andrew and Warren and Tucker and the nurtrio and all that stuff. And the, the Tucker being the not so subtle metaphor for uh, white male privilege or whatever, toxic masculinity. Um, you're absolutely right. And uh, I, I, man, I don't even know how to have this conversation. So I'm so defensive of Jonathan or I'm so protect, not defensive. I'm so protective of Jonathan because, um, I feel like the show is at times needlessly cruel to the character of Jonathan. And I feel like some of his acting out, obviously it goes to the genre television show about monsters extremes that it goes to. But in mm-hmm. some respects, Jonathan's acting out, I feel like is, if not appropriate, then understandable or, or I empathize a little bit with the arc of Jonathan. So I tend to feel sorry for him when we see him for three seasons, just basically being the hostage guy or the guy that no, whose name nobody remembers or whatever. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I'm mixed on the Tucker thing, the reveal that like he has his reasons for, for being maladjusted as Buffy calls him. And those reasons are a girl turned him down for the prom or, or that's, that's what we see at least. Um, so I'm mixed on that. There are absolutely unquestionably is a, a horrible <laughs> sense of, of a nerds, and geeks now that now that they feel empowered they are becoming the abusers the way they used to be abused that's mm-hmm. absolutely a thing that happens on the other hand i'm uncomfortable with how often i feel like this show dips into the realms of uh the nerds the geeks and the outsiders are the ones that are the troublemakers i can understand that guy was definitely i was one of those uh shy kids who not the least popular, but definitely not popular in any sense. Mm-hmm. I, I had friends, but we were not the cool people. Right. And, um, like, I, I understand how it's not totally uncommon that, that, um, that, that transition to, to, uh, you've got to have to, bully somebody and that 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 chain of screaming right where yeah. the boss screams at the employee who goes home and screams at his wife who screams at his 
kids and what have you. Yeah. But, um, like, I feel that Buffy was kind of ahead of its time in pop culture with acknowledging that there are sometimes some stupid reasons that people think that they've been persecuted and it's ridiculous and the idea that that dudes think that they are entitled to things because they're nice right that that um i think buffy they they maybe put it too much on that the nerdy kids but i think like they show with early super nerdy willow that you can still be like a nice person and be a nerd mm-hmm. and i think they they rely a little too heavily on on willow as being the willow and xander being as the nice nerds but um i think it, it's good that they did do like so much recognition about entitlement this is why i say i kind of struggle or I, i'm mixed on that whole tucker thing tucker's motivation because uh it it was it's realistic. That's a thing that happens. It's a thing that uh, it happened back then. I'd say it happens more often now, but that's probably not true. I think we just notice it more or we acknowledge it mm-hmm. or recognize it more now than we did. Um, maybe there's a longer discussion here to have about whether Willow and Xander, not Willow, but, but mostly Xander, is he supposed to be the nice nerd? Like, is he supposed to be, that's true. is he supposed to be the good loser? Uh, Cause he isn't always. And, uh, we could even say that uh, Willow, Willow's self-empowerment takes a super dark turn. I think that's, that's undeniable. I think that's undeniable. Um, I don't know. The show, the show does great things, and I, I don't want to discount uh, character flaws that are meant intentionally to be character flaws. But there are, every once in a while, there are things that sort of poke at me, and I feel this show sometimes leans further into the geeks are evil cliche than I would have expected considering our heroes started the series out as the geeks, but you I, I could say if you wanted to both get meta and far more, uh, psychologically anal- analyzing Joss that he to some extent was putting that into the series because he gaining power and uh as as we know from uh from recent news that maybe too much power and taking advantage of it he was putting it in this series as maybe uh hey somebody check me <laughs> kind of a thing i i uh the, this is certainly a conversation i've heard uh this came up a lot at the most recent slayage conference uh and, and there are people on various with various theories and various sides of this i personally i'm not sure how if he was doing that i i think you're right he probably was doing that i wouldn't expect that to have been conscious <laughs> yeah it's very i think more likely that he wasn't doing it on purpose yeah. but that it was coming through anyway yeah yeah anyways man i i'm so distracting us from discussion of the episode <laughs> Um, so what, what amazing stuff happened in this episode that we have yet to talk about? Uh, well, we've got, uh, the, the Cordy dress scene where she, she, I love how, um, Xander, it's almost the exact same scene as the previous episode where he walks her through the window and 
makes the conscious choice to go in. Right. Like you see it on his face. He's like, no, I can't not go in and make fun of her. Yeah. So he goes in and he starts in on her. Just, I think he is enjoying their, their return to the, the snark. And then she gets embarrassed and you can see the confusion on his face. He's just like, wait, what? How is what? Yeah. And, and she's just raging about her situation. And you can see how his brain is like, wait, I've been a dick and she's been dealing with this stuff. I need to, I need to process this. And they, they are still like a little snappy banter between them for the rest of the episode before the actual prom, but it's mostly on Cordy's side and neither of them are as, uh, as snarky as they have been. Yeah. It's, it's like the turning point of him remembering that Cordy's a person with her own life and she isn't just there to be his punching bag or, or uh, to fuel his uh, excuse for, for not thinking of her as a person because of what happened. Yeah. What do you think, like, what was your, what were your feelings on the, I've seen some people complain that the, uh, my daddy cheated on his taxes for 12 years and now I don't have any money or a house or a car or any of that stuff. Some people have said that that came out of nowhere and that was like super abrupt. Um, how did you feel about that? And honestly, I mean, with Cordy, she's, she's not a main character and she's not, she's not really tertiary. Like, like Joyce can be, but Mm -hmm. she's, at this point, she's much more a satellite to the group. I actually, in my notes, I have, why is Cordy even there for, <laughs> yes. for that, that scene? Yeah. Although I assume she brought the, uh, the videotape. But my initial thought was like, why is she even hanging out with them? Yeah. And um, so it didn't seem too out, like it didn't matter to me that it was out of nowhere because we aren't seeing most of what's going on in her life. If she was still dating Xander and it happened out of the blue like that, then it would be weird because she would be talking to to him about it, at least maybe a little bit on screen. But Mm -hmm. since she's not in the the group anymore, it's not as weird to me. Well, I'm not sure if the if the sort of conversation, the larger conversation that those nitpicks are about. I'm not sure if people are talking about it's an obvious setup for her to leave the show so she can join Angel, but I, I kind of read that as I, <laughs> I felt like it was an obvious setup. I felt like they they needed to maybe they had sort of just decided when we give Angel his own show, Cordy is going to go with him. And we need to an explanation, like we need to set the stage for why will she not be in Sunnydale anymore? What, like, what's her art going to be when she gets on this new show? Okay, let's take away all her money. Let's completely uproot this character and 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 destroy the life that we've seen her have up to this point. Um, like, I've kind of felt like that's what was going on, but it didn't bother me in the slightest. I think maybe yeah. that's what people mean when they say it felt like it came out of nowhere. People were annoyed by that. I just wondered if it if it bothered you, or if you thought that it was too uh, too transparent did, that that's what they were doing didn't bother me and I think it it helps set the stage for her 
character development in Angel that she you know, like they could have done it that she just goes to LA to be an actress mm-hmm. but um, she would have had daddy's money to fall back on yeah and she she develops a lot with uh, living in a crappy apartment with a ghost right. and cockroaches yeah yeah no I, um, I I guess you're right they could have done it any number of ways they could have gotten her to the same place without necessarily pulling the rug out from under her at this moment but Doing that here, I mean, it gives us the good, it gives us the, as close as we're ever going to get to sort of a reconciliation between her and Xander. Like, that's mm-hmm. one of the only ways that that could have happened that way. Uh, and it, I will never complain about whatever hoops they had to jump through in order to set her up for Angel because her, her arc on Angel is so phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, except for the fact that they try to completely destroy it by the end but <laughs> the the growth that she undergoes on that series is tremendous so i'm just happy that they did whatever they had to do to get her on that show mm-hmm. um so we already talked about tucker he's kind of i mean who even really cares <laughs> we talked about the hellhounds also really who even cares they were they literally were the MacGuffin of the episode mm-hmm. so uh, we've got the breakups the breakup yeah which I think was was uh pretty realistic for their ages like you and Matthew I think were talking about um the the difference in maturity between Buffy and Angel but it's not that big a difference even before we have very petty angels showing up all the time. Um, we have, you know, he's, he's kind of been in a, a uh, prolonged adolescence where it's not really adolescence, but like early twenties ish where he's, he's been that way since he was vamped. He was already like pretty immature as an adult when he was Liam and then he gets vamped and he gets to just be id all over the place. And then he gets his soul and he just, his, his most of the handling of it for him was just to be sulky and alone and cut himself off from everything, which is not a mature, healthy response, although it's completely understandable. And then he has this, this, uh, high school romance with a high school girl and it's like she's 17 and he's 22 and maybe it's a little creepy and but he's not that much more mature than she is and I think um, expecting him to be is kind of fair to him Buffy still she's, she's the lead she gets to be the one having the tantrum she's the right level of petulant and dramatic for a breakup at 17 years old, 18 years old. And um, Angel is clearly like trying to be the mature one. And, but he's, he's also, you can see, you know, this is hard for him and he's, he's trying not to be cruel while uh, it's clearly like, it's a decision he's come to, but he's still a little bit torn about it. Like, as, as is evident in the episode where he kind of, to, when they see each other later, he wants to kind of 
be friends already. Right. And it just it just seems so perfect for me. Like I hate that scene because I hate being part of a breakup, but like it's it seems really well written to me. Yeah, so my thoughts during that breakup scene, um I growing up I was uh I was perpetually the seventeen year old girl in all of my relation in all of my teenage relationships. Um I've always been hyper emotional and um I, I I don't know, I've always been the hopeless romantic. So I it's really weird for a 48 year old man now to say this, but I, I'm much more identified with Buffy in that scene than I did with Angel. And I thought, uh, again, Sarah Michelle Geller's performance of that, uh, of that heartbreak. And later when she, when she breaks down talking to Willow, both mm-hmm. of those, um, it easily could have played. And this show has allowed it to play sometimes as over the top, high school melodrama uh, right. but every once in a while you get moments that feel like genuinely just real and heartbreaking and the the actual breakup scene i thought was great particularly the line when she she's passed to the sort of yelling and crying and she's just got sort of tears in her eyes and she says is this really happening that is so real so damn real the look on her face and the 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 thousand yard stare that she's got felt absolutely real Mm -hmm. and then it is teenage like it is teenage melodrama but when she breaks down in willow's arms and talks about i feel like i can't breathe super real super powerful yes and absolutely how a breakup at that age feels Mm -hmm. especially your first love it really feels like you are gonna die without them it's you know you're not but it feels that way yeah great stuff um, and then, uh, I will say that sometimes over the course of the series, when Buffy goes through a, an emotional pummeling or whatever, and she comes out the other side and, uh, and tries to be, you know, the, the strong leader or whatever, sometimes it plays as just for plot reasons. This is what has to happen. Buffy's the lead of the show. She's the one that has to take charge. Um, but again, just as her thousand yard stare was believable, her breakdown in Willow's arms, uh, her Willow's lap actually was believable when she bumps into Angel later. And she's like, can we not do this? When I think about us, I tend to go all catatonic and I really don't have time for that right now. I, that like, that felt like realistic strength from her. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Although there's in the Willow scene, she says that, uh, he doesn't really get the prom, but he gets the Carrie reference. Like, how how does that work? Did did he only watch like like one one hundredth of the movies that ever came out? Well, did he was, just skip the eighty movies? Well, do we know if it was Angel or Angelus that watched Carrie? Because Angelus true. probably would have been watching it through completely uh, completely different lens. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, I don't know. Um. Yeah, that was a very interesting uh, list of movies that Tucker had there. Prom Night, Pump Up the Volume. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating yeah, I, choice. Like, I used to love that movie. I haven't seen it in years, but I adored that movie. And the prom is like the least important part of it. Yeah, I barely remembered there was even a prom in that. That's crazy. Um, and then Prom Night 4. I'm not familiar with the Prom Night films, but it's 
interesting that he has prom night and prom night four. <laughs> what happened to yeah. two and three? Uh, and then pretty in pink and Carrie, obviously. And the club, I have no idea what the club is. I don't even know if that's a real movie. I don't either. Okay. I'm not going to Google it. I'll just pretend it's not a real movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listeners can correct me. Um, so, all right. So let's talk about the prom itself. What I so I may have said this on the show previously, but I had a very um, non-typical, like, high school childhood. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't stay at one school for very long. I was never really involved in any of the sort of social gatherings or the the rites of passage. So, in some sense, I have a really hard time identifying with all of the high school stuff that these characters are going through. And prom is one of those. I have never in my entire life been to any prom. So my only touchstone, my only experience with high school proms is through movies and television. So, but what about you? Um, Oh, I I went to my proms and I went to uh, homecomings at my high school and at friends, high schools. Okay. Um, So I, I was, a big fan of going to school dances. Although when it came time junior year to make a decision about whether or not I was going to go to prom, I was pretty torn on it just because I was at the point in my life where I didn't want to do all the things that like necessarily were like prescribed for teenagers, which prom was right. Especially in pop culture. Like every, every prom that I've seen in movies before the 90s where like you decorate the gym and you have some punch and somebody spikes the punch and then you have to have sex afterwards and i was like i'm not no and (laughs) our our proms it 98 and 99 we we you know we had it at a very expensive hotel in their ballroom and it was catered and it was very nice and nobody that i know of slept with anybody that they weren't already sleeping with interesting Interesting. All right. Yeah. So that was going to be my question is how, how, uh, realistic was this? Um, yeah, for my, my experience, the pop culture proms are not very similar to what, what I went through. Okay. All right. But I feel that way for a lot of, uh, pop culture, high school tropes. Uh-huh, yeah. Like we never did the, the, um, the Hawkins day dance or any of that and that is like a staple in tv yeah and we we just we didn't have all the clicks that that you know you watch a teen movie and you have you know every single different group is a a united by one thing and it's like no we were just you know i would hang out with the band kids and then i would hang out with some jocks and then i would hang out with some other people and it just it didn't like we didn't all like travel in packs. <laughs> yeah. it was, it's all just not how I experienced high school at all. Well, your life is never going to be adapted into a television series. Right. That is not like easily compartmentalized. <laughs> um, Honestly, um, my so-called life is the closest as yeah. I will ever get to being adapted to any screen. Yeah, man. I I seriously need to revisit that show. I remember loving the hell out of that show. It has a special place in my heart, but I haven't seen it in probably 20 years. Oh my God, it's still so good. Although 
I've had the DVD set since it was first available. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I watch it every year or two. Man. And um, so it may be that I just go and, and revert immediately to being <laughs> in seventh grade, which is when it aired. And it, it was special to me anyway because it was the first TV show that my dad and I watched together. Yeah. Which, yeah. considering all the other things that we've watched together, seems really out of character. But... Um, <laughs> My dad, I think he started watching TV with me because he wanted to connect with the teenage girl experience and, and help me be a teenage girl in a way that dad's supposed to because he wasn't around a lot when I was younger, being in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And um, after that, it was all like sci-fi and fantasy stuff. <laughs> so, it, but, like, It was our, our first show together, and so it had a special place for that. And then because it felt so realistic. It was the first show that I had ever seen that really seemed like it was reflecting my school experience and my experience as a teenager. Yeah. So um, I guess now's a good time to announce I'll be doing a spinoff podcast about my so-called life. No, (laughs) that is not true. That's not true. I can't take on another thing, but uh, I, I do need to revisit that. So I may bring that conversation up again in a later episode. Sounds good to me. Uh, so Giles had a great line where he said, I had no idea that children on mass could be gracious. That's a, yes. that's a fantastic line. Uh, but I mean, it, so in order to get to that line, we have to cover. Uh, I, I had to talk with my wife last night about how um, one of the interesting things for me that's coming out of this rewatch is I'm kind of, I feel like possibly I'm getting Buffy out of my system. That's a terrible thing to say because I, I, adore this world. I adore all of these characters. And, and obviously I love going to the Slayage conference, which is so like just digging down into the finest, most minute of details. But um, Buffy has lived in my head as a memory. And as, as hearing other people talk about it at the Slayage conferences for so many years on this rewatch, I'm, I feel like maybe I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm I'm watching the show and maybe this will be the last time I watch it. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but I've, so for our discussion tonight, I have rewatched the prom twice and both times, despite my, my love hate relationship with Buffy Summers, despite having no personal prom experience myself, uh, I inexplicably tear up at the whole class protector thing oh i always do i don't get it that is i'm super emotional but that it's weird to me that that is the moment that gets me but man as soon as jonathan opens up the umbrella and says it says buffy summers class protector i'm like oh geez i can't do this (laughs) (laughs) i don't so i know i'm not the only one but please tell me that that moment breaks you oh absolutely although as i get older and and uh more jaded it's it's less but it still it still gets me yeah i mean i'm super jaded but so i shouldn't get me at all <laughs> damn it but both times I, I joked up at that um i also i love it looks i don't know if it's just the way the lighting is or what but jonathan's eyes super pop and he looks like he's he's almost in presenting it mm-hmm. and it makes me just feel all warm and fuzzy yeah I mean, this comes, uh, okay. So, so 
maybe that's one of the interesting things that on the original airing schedule was lost by viewers not having the opportunity to watch Earshot. So I think that was the main one. Yeah. So uh, the emotion that you're reading on Jonathan's face there most likely comes from the fact that Buffy literally just a couple episodes ago saved his life. Mm -hmm. Um, explicitly prevented him from killing himself. Uh, so yeah, he probably is like really emotional. He's probably feels closer to that, to giving her that award than most of the other kids in the class. Yeah. Um, but yeah, on original viewing, people wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't have known that. So. Yeah. I remember thinking that it was kind of weird, but I was like, well, you know, he recurs. So that's probably why. Yeah. But I also have a note that Jonathan has a date to prom. I saw that too. I saw that too. I think originally airing, I thought it was like kind of weird, but like not super notable. I was just like, oh, how do you get a date? Because, you know, it's just Jonathan was the, the sort of the uh, whipping boy. Right. And so I was like, that's weird, but it with... um. I think it's supposed to speak to his improving mental health and uh, after Buffy's intervention. Yeah. 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 Although I don't, I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure we see them together at the prom. We see them walk in together, but I don't, I don't ever see them dance at some point. I remember, I think it's probably in the background, but um, there's like a, a sweep where you see a bunch of different couples dancing and it includes all the couples that we have a name for at least one person. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of camera sweeps of the crowd, I, it's interesting to note the surprising number of persons of color in that prom crowd. Did you yeah, know? Yeah, if only there, there were more during, you know, other scenes. Yeah, <laughs> like I, it's... During, during the prom, it was a nice mix, but... I, you know, my, my first impulse was to say, well, look, the show, the show is trying to recognize its failure, like it's trying to recognize that, man, we've really been white up to this point. Um, but th- th- it actually just makes it worse because yeah. if you're looking at that prom scene, I had like m- maybe half of the students in that dance are, are Latino or, or African-American. Like there are a lot of persons of color in that crowd way more than we ever see <laughs> in any other right. episode. Um, and none of whom get to be main characters or get speaking roles or anything. In fact, there was one scene where I think it's as, uh, Jonathan is, is presenting the award as he's reading the note and everything. There's one scene that cuts to Willow and Oz watching sort of their reaction shot. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, they're surrounded by kids. And if there are like eight kids standing around them, six of them are black. Like, like they, there's so many persons of color in that in that auditorium that it really actually makes it worse that we never see them any other time. Agreed. So, anyways, I don't know. I thought I I was shocked when I saw those scenes and I was like, "Dang, look at look look at all these actors of color. Where, where were they before? Where did they come from? <laughs> and where do they go because we never see them again?" Yeah, Sunnydale U is is definitely a very white school as well. Yeah. Um, I can think of one black character. Yeah, in the initiative. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's probably, yeah, I don't know. There's probably more, but that's the only one that comes to mind for me as well. Yeah, throughout the series, I think it's just Mr. Chicken Forest and um, Kendra. Yeah. They're like the, the main ones. They're, they're the only ones with speaking lines that I can think of. Well, I'm, there's Robin. We have oh, true. Yeah, we eventually get Robin. But anyways, um, so I, I don't know if I had anything else to add. I, I, I feel like these episodes are, they're both great. I feel like they're important, but I think they're kind of overshadowed because the, we, we obviously get the next two episodes that everybody are the episodes everybody wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think these episodes are mostly just remembered for the class protector. Award. Yeah. There's actually a lot like in this that I didn't, until I was watching it for the show and taking notes uh, that I didn't realize that um, I, I was aware of that. I noticed like um, when, when Xander and everybody's doing research in the library and Buffy's kind of just like, zoned out on the steps and he comes over to talk to her and not paying any attention to him he, he says that she her uh impression of an animate inanimate object is coming along really well mm-hmm. and then she's just like thanks and he just walks off i was like that's that's the heart of the group really <laughs> but um you know it, it's a very xander sort of thing and i have to remember that he does grow and there's stuff like um all the stuff in um Buffy's like intense investment being her projecting all of her her dreams on on her friends for prom night all her mm-hmm. fantasies mm-hmm. that like I never remember that this stuff is in there and then when I watch it I'm like all oh, right two other like uh, kind of there's a little bit of dust in the air scenes for me, uh, both involve Giles where, um, you're talking about uh, Buffy becomes super invested in making sure that her friends have a wonderful prom since she knows that she's not going to get to have one mm-hmm. when, <clears throat> excuse me, when Giles realizes that's what's going on and he comes over to talk to her and he's like, you know, angels, not angels, not taking you is he? I'm so sorry. I understand moments like this require some sort of ice cream. Like that moment right there is, is brief. And she brushes it off, and she's like, "Fortunately, being a slayer means that uh, punching things Taking is asses. comfort food." Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but there is just that very brief moment where he gets uh, super fatherly again, and I love all of those moments. So, yes, I have a note in or in my notes. It just it's a heart. It says heart Giles ice cream. <laughs> right, exactly. And then uh, at. Uh, at the end of the prom when uh, it's actually right after Giles uh, gives that line. Um, I didn't know that children on mass could be gracious. Uh, Buffy says every once in a while people surprise you. And, and uh, Giles says every once in a while, as he looks up and realizes that angel has come to the prom again, it's a s- silly little emotionally manipulative line, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. I allow myself to be manipulated by things like that. That was touching. And I, I I would have written uh, Hart Giles prom at <laughs> <laughs> that moment, I guess. <sighs> there was another moment with Oz early on when he and Willow are coming in and she's saying dance before we get bedeviled or beheaded. Right. And he's yeah. like so confident in Buffy and yeah. he's just like, 
she won't let us down. And so they get punched. Yeah. And I have Oz's confidence heart. <laughs> Everything Oz heart. Damn it. True. Everything Oz. Um, again, even though I'm more Team Wesley than Team Scooby at the moment, I love the fact that it is Oz. Oz who sits quietly through the entire debate about whether or not they're going to trade the box for Willow and all that. And he just finally stands up and shatters the, the yeah, Oz, spell. Component. I like that. He's quiet in his anger as well as just in general. He, you know, he's a man of very few words and he knows when he needs to use them and when he doesn't. Yeah. And that definitely spoke for itself. And I really wanted to see stick figures, Xander and Oz. I wanted to see stick figure Oz with his <laughs> I guitar. Know. I wish I wish we'd gotten to see that. Uh, okay. So yeah, I uh, I think I'm done. I don't think I had anything else really to to talk about. Well, the last thing in my notes is that um, Angel showing up for prom was a really sweet gesture, mm-hmm. and it's a very TV gesture, but it's also kind of fucked up. Like he tells Buffy that it doesn't change anything, and she understands, but. Like she's she's a seventeen year old girl, and some part of her is going to be like, "Oh, hopes up, yay, my boyfriend." <laughs> yeah, I did kind of think. Uh, I guess I thought about that as the scene, because it, it fades to black on a very touching, beautiful shot of them like dancing together, and and he's holding her close, and I was like, "Hey, that was a very beautifully shot moment." Um, and both actors just looked fantastic and they had the appropriate mm-hmm. sort of Hollywood soft light glow about them and everything. It was beautiful. Um, and I was like, if, if that is the final moment, if that had been the final moment of the Buffy and angel romance, I would have been completely happy with that. But you're right. There was a little part of me that was like, man, just leave it alone. <laughs> right. <laughs> she, she'd, she'd kind of made her peace with the way the prom was going to be. You didn't really need to show up like that. Yeah. Oh, well, as you said, he's had uh, 250 years to of prolonged adolescence. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. he's not really much more of an adult than she is. <sighs> All right. Um, so that was that. Um, I like I said, I have someone who is supposedly signed on for the for the next episode of the podcast, but I have not been able to get in touch with them and get confirmation. So at this moment, I don't actually officially have anybody signed up. And I can't remember if we were on mic when we had this conversation or not, Melanie, but you sounded willing, let's say. Absolutely. (laughs) To join me. So um, I will obviously, I will let you know as soon as I possibly can, if I get confirmation from my other guest, but uh, if not, if, if, they can't do it or if i never get in touch with them you are invited back for graduation day part one and part two Excellent. and so. if i don't make it for that then i will see you in season four okay uh so do you want to let the listeners in, at home know how they can track you down online um the best place is probably on twitter um i am at research nerdery uh that's my my public twitter account and um that's pretty much it, uh, unless you're looking for gardening help and are in the D.C. area, which you can probably just tweet at me anyway, if you are. Are, are you a, a gardening expert? 
Uh, I'm not an expert, but uh, this summer I started my own business doing garden design, landscape work, and uh, garden implementation with a focus on native plants to um, provide sort of a little mini oasis of of um, an ecosystem in some in your yard so that we can kind of it's it's a small help for the environment but it's better than nothing that, and that's awesome it, it, thank you that's it's, totally it's awesome kind of a passion project for me for a long time and when I, i've been unemployed for a little while and so this summer i was just like all right i'm just gonna go for it that's totally awesome i i apologize i had no idea that was going on um you need now i need to get you to come to birmingham and <laughs> fix my yard because i'm terrible at all of that um i have i have a little i will laughingly call it a nature area it's not really uh it's it's an area that I dug out and put some mulch specifically so I could put bird feeders up for my cat. <laughs> so um, I have like eight bird feeders around my house now because I've gotten carried away with that project. But uh, it would be so nice if uh, my yard had any sort of maintenance or landscaping to it. <laughs> so we may have to talk. Okay. We may have to talk. Uh, in the meantime, uh, everybody at home, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes on the website conswithdead.com, um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are, uh, a plethora of Buffy and Angel podcasts out there. So anything kind that you could say about this podcast would certainly help us stand out from the crowd. Uh, if you've got any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. Uh, you can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People, um, where, uh, Melanie, you are among a very small handful of people who are keeping that format alive. <laughs> so I I want to extend uh, my deepest thanks to you and Tammy Anderson and uh, my most recent guest, Matthew Cravat. Uh, you three are kind of keeping it going. Um, other people jump in, but but man, the three of you are the ones. Anytime I, I go and check that account, I'm like, oh man, there are comments. I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't prepared for people to actually be commenting here and there you guys are. So. Well, I am the sort that when, whether I'm listening to this podcast or gobbledygeek or really any podcast that somebody I know is doing, I always have all these responses in the moment where I talk back to my iPod <laughs> or my car stereo. And so I, I try to remember to save all those up and then, throw them on the, the page for you. I'm sure that I provide plenty of opportunity for you to talk back <laughs> to your listening device. So I, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on Facebook. Thank you very much. No problem. Uh, so as I was saying, uh, still trying to confirm my next guest, it may or may not end up being Melanie. Uh, whoever the lucky winner is, they will be joining me to wrap up Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the high school years, uh, as season three closes on graduation day part one and graduation day part two. Until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg.
Is love.